Hey everyone, and welcome back. This is Crimes of the Times. I'm your host, Sterling, and on this show, I dive into the intricacies of true crime cases around the world and throughout history. Listener discretion is advised. Today's case is so brutal and so senseless. Mark Burton was a monster, and if this case doesn't leave you in absolute awe, I'm not sure what would. There's a bunch to get into in this one, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Mark Oren Barton was born on April 2, 1955 in Stockbridge, Georgia, and was the only child to Tremon and Gladys Barton, the former of whom worked for the U.S. Air Force. His parents were stationed in Germany not long after he was born, and he lived in Europe for the majority of his childhood until the family moved to Sumter, South Carolina. Intelligent but emotionally distant, Barton was said to be a loner at school, often being left out by other children. As a teen, Barton began abusing hallucinogenic drugs and as a result had several visits to local hospitals due to accidental overdoses. First attending Clemson University and later the University of South Carolina, Barton committed a robbery in order to pay for the drugs he was abusing. He was caught, charged, and was forced to undergo drug and psychiatric therapy. Despite his drug habit, Barton graduated from the University of South Carolina in 1979 with a degree in chemistry and moved to Atlanta, Georgia. There, he met Deborah Spivey, whom he would later marry. Not long after they got married, the couple would leave Georgia for Texarkana, Arkansas, when Barton was made the president of a manufacturing company he and his friends started called TLC Manufacturing, making about $86,000 a year. While in Texarkana, Mark and Deborah had two children together, whom they named Matthew and Michelle. It seems that it was at this point that Barton became paranoid and controlling over Deborah and their marriage began to experience a dramatic downturn as a result. In 1990, Barton had a mysterious parting of ways with his company, TLC Manufacturing. Really though, it wasn't all that mysterious. His paranoia led him to getting fired, although Barton said in his deposition that it was actually just a way for the company to save face and not scare off suppliers. Right. Oddly, after Barton's last day at TLC Manufacturing, Someone broke into their offices, stole secret formulas, and erased important computer files. Barton, of course, being the disgruntled employee, was immediately suspected of committing the sabotage, and police went to Barton's home and arrested him on a burglary charge. However, according to a report at the time, a detective investigating the case believed the burglary, quote, was not intended for the theft of the product formula, but to hide kickbacks, discrepancies in inventory, or the possible sale of chemicals for drug activity, end quote. But Barton didn't have to spend much time in jail because on the same day, a TLC board member called the police to say, without elaboration, that the company had reached an agreement with Barton and the charges were dropped. Soon after the charges were dropped, Barton moved his family back to Georgia and took a job as a salesman for a chemical company. In his new position, Barton got to know a young receptionist named Leanne Lang who was married at the time, but apparently not happily. Barton told people, quote, she liked older guys. She made that known to everybody, end quote. And by May 1993, Barton and Lang were having a full-blown affair. He purchased a whole new wardrobe and began keeping up with a tan, which Deborah grew suspicious of. Regarding Deborah's suspicion, Barton said, quote, the key to the whole thing was I started going to the tanning bed and she didn't like that. She was jealous all throughout the relationship because I was in outside sales, end quote. Okay, I'm sorry. 
but why would she be jealous of you because you were in outside cells? That makes zero sense. Barton also said, quote, She found her own dog's hair on me one time, and she asked if it was another lady's hair. I just denied it, end quote. What a piece of garbage, this guy. At the same time he was having an affair, Barton took out a life insurance policy on Deborah. He wanted to take out a million, but couldn't afford the premiums, so he settled on $600,000. He rationalized it to the insurer by saying that it was her idea, when in reality, she had no idea that he just took out an insurance policy on her. In June 1993, Barton and Leanne took a trip to Charlotte, North Carolina, where they had dinner with a few of her friends. Over dinner, Barton said he had never loved anyone more than Leanne and that he would be free to marry her by October 1st. I don't know about you guys, but this is a huge red flag to me and definitely foreshadowing. By the end of August, Leanne was ready to end her own marriage and found an apartment and moved in with her sister. A few days later, Deborah Barton went to Alabama to spend Labor Day with her mother in a lakeside trailer, while Mark Barton stayed home with their children, Michelle and Matthew. Or at least that's what he told authorities. By the end of Labor Day weekend, the bodies of Deborah Barton and her mother, Eloise Spivey, were found in the lakeside trailer, hacked to death by an axe-like tool that police never recovered. Less than an hour after his wife's funeral, police showed up at Barton's home looking for evidence. He played a cat and mouse game with the investigators who searched his possessions and sprayed the house with luminol, a chemical that causes blood to glow in the dark. Although he was a chemist and luminol had been around for a while, Barton claimed to have no knowledge of it and then added to police, quote, I actually had seen it before on an episode of Columbo, end quote. Oh yeah, I'm sure you had, dirtbag. The police did, however, get a positive reaction from the Luminol in Barton's car on the ignition switch and also on a seatbelt. Barton had no explanation for why there might be blood in his vehicle, but he did have a challenge for the authorities. He said, quote, If there is a ton of blood in my car, why aren't you arresting me? Why am I not in handcuffs? End quote. Unfortunately, the police admitted that there wasn't enough blood evident to warrant an arrest. Barton must have been paranoid because he later made a trip to Alabama to offer a reason for the blood in his car. He told police there that it had occurred to him that he had cut his finger to the bone the summer before his wife's murder. He insisted that if there was any blood in his car, it was his own. Still, Barton refused to give blood or saliva samples for DNA testing or take a lie detector test. Of course he didn't because he was guilty as sin. In the end, the authorities had strong feelings Barton was guilty of murdering his wife and mother-in-law, but there were no witnesses to place him at the campground, no fingerprints, and only inconclusive forensic evidence. Before authorities could retest the blood traces in his car, Barton claimed to have spilled a soft drink on them, destroying any evidence. Within just a week of Deborah's death, Lee Ann was spending nights at the house with Barton and his kids. The month after Deborah's murder, Lee Ann's divorce was final and six months later, the two moved in together. By then, Barton was living in Morrow, Georgia, where neighbors knew nothing about his first wife's murder. Mark Barton's second marriage, however, gave little promise of a happily ever after life. Leanne would often pick up and leave, and neighbors would gossip about the problems they had at home. This gossip was about some trouble in February 1994, when Barton's daughter, Michelle, then just two and a half years old, told a daycare worker that her father had sexually molested her. Of course, after this, mental evaluations followed, and the psychologist said Barton, quote, certainly was capable, end quote, of committing a homicide. However, 
Given Michelle's age, it was difficult for state attorneys to build a solid case against Martin or prevent him from keeping custody of the kids. Then, in 1997, the insurance company for Deborah's insurance policy decided to settle for $450,000, figuring a jury would have sympathized with the plight of Martin's kids if the case went to court. The company stipulated, however, that $150,000 go into a trust for Michelle and Matthew. With the insurance windfall, Barton sued and allowed himself to be swept into the risk-loving fraternity of day traders who try to make a living hunched over a computer terminal betting on the daily gyrations of individual stocks. By 1999, Barton was a full-time day trader, but things took a turn for the worse that summer. Barton had lost about $105,000 between June 7th and July 27th, almost all of it on volatile internet stocks according to Momentum Securities, where he traded. Reports said that his account there had been closed on the Tuesday before his killing spree because he was unable to meet a margin call, which is a brokerage firm's demand that a customer put up cash to cover a debt caused by falling stock prices. The Christmas before, Barton reportedly sat down his estranged wife, Leanne, and confessed to huge financial losses as a day trader in the stock market. He told her that he had lost it all and needed help. Yeah, I'd say he needed all the help. In order to reopen his account and continue day trading, he reportedly wrote a $50,000 check, but of course, it bounced, and he was denied trading privileges that Wednesday and Thursday. But before he was a trader at Momentum Securities, he traded at another day trading company, Alltech. At Alltech, clients had to maintain at least a $40,000 balance, and on at least two occasions, Barton lost the full value of his account and was barred from further trading until he could restore his account to that minimum. This man just didn't know when to give it up or was just too stubborn. I'll take the latter. Even though Barton had lost around $300,000 during his time day trading, it is said that the chemist turned trader had the money to cover his losses. A spokeswoman for Alltech reported that at the time of the spree, Barton was worth $750,000 with $250,000 in liquid assets, so money was obviously not the motive. Now, let's talk about the evil and senseless crimes that he would commit during a three-day span that began July 27, 1999, the Tuesday that his day trading account was closed at Momentum Securities because he didn't put up the cash to meet the brokerage firm's call margin. It was Tuesday afternoon at the Bristol Green Apartments in Stockbridge, Georgia, when Mark Burton put on a scout uniform and took his son, Matthew, to a troop meeting for Boy Scouts. One of Matthew's friends and fellow scouts, Travis Holmes, who was 14 at the time, said he saw Barton and Matthew and struck up a conversation with them, but he exclaimed that nothing seemed to be out of the ordinary as they talked about merit badges and camp. Travis saw no signs that Mark Barton was going to take the first steps on a terrifying journey that would devastate families, challenge a city's sense of security, and rivet the nation with its intimate brutality and horrific randomness. There was no way for Travis to know that Tuesday afternoon that he was talking with a man who, by his own admission, which we'll talk about soon, was consumed with hatred. Hours after the ordinary conversation about scouts, Barton beat Leah Ann to death with a hammer and stuffed her body in the bedroom closet. The next morning and afternoon, Barton stayed in his apartment with his 11-year-old son, Matthew, and his 8-year-old daughter, Michelle. That Wednesday night, Barton bludgeoned both Matthew and Michelle as they slept in their beds. He then put them face down in the bathtub. He said he did this to make sure they did not wake up in pain. Okay, I'm sorry. How about you just don't beat your kids with a hammer in the first place so that wouldn't happen? What an absolute piece of shit. 
Authorities reported that after he made sure his children were deceased, he tidied himself up and then put the children back in their beds and tucked them in. He left a video game on Matthew's body and a stuffed toy on Michelle's. Now, he was all alone in an apartment with three bodies of people he supposedly loved. So what does he do? He boots up a home computer and typed a note. He addressed it, quote, to whom it may concern, end quote, and dated it Thursday, July 29th at 6.38 a.m. The note read, quote, I don't plan to live very much longer, just enough to kill as many of the people that greedily sought my destruction, end quote. What a self-centered piece of shit this guy was. Did your kids seek your destruction? Why did they have to die because of what you thought other people did to you? Give me a break. About eight hours later, that Thursday, July 29th, 1999, he had made an appointment with the manager of Momentum Securities to put up $50,000 cash so he could continue the fast-paced, high-risk stock market speculation that had become his obsession. Unbeknownst to the manager and employees, though, Barton had no intention to hand over the money. Instead, he had something else entirely different on his mind. Barton arrived in Buckhead, Atlanta's pristine upscale financial district at about a quarter past two. The manager had stepped out briefly to the bank, so Barton waited about 15 or 20 minutes for him to return, chatting with the staff and other day traders. Casually clad in khaki shorts and a polo shirt, the 44-year-old trader known as quote, rocket, for moods as volatile as the stocks, appeared to be jovial and relaxed. According to Joe Skipper, a day trader there at the time, Barton showed no sign of disturbance when he entered the office. Barton passed Skipper in the hall on his way to the break room and then came back into the trading room. The manager he wanted to see still had not returned, but Barton could wait no longer. And, according to Skipper, that is when he heard the first shots ring out. Detective Steve Walden, who spoke to victims and witnesses, reported that Barton began shutting the blinds in the office and then he closed one of the doors before turning around and whipping out two guns, one in each hand. The two-fisted gunman reportedly smiled ironically and calmly said, quote, it's a bad trading day and it's about to get worse, end quote, before he began opening fire with a Glock 9mm semi-automatic in one hand and a Colt 45 in the other. As soon as the first shots rang out, Joe Skipper and another trader, Glenn Miller, headed for a back office and barricaded themselves in. They flipped over a desk in front of the door and held it closed from behind it. The enraged Barton began ramming the door, trying to force it open, but couldn't, so he opened fire through it. Joe Skipper said he felt the wind from a bullet as it passed close to his head. Barton shot through the door and desk twice. Trapped in the back room, the two terrified traders found an ingenious new use for a computer by launching it through a third floor window to open up an escape route. As gunfire claimed the lives of four victims throughout the building, survivors ran for shelter, and one of the first officers to arrive on the scene heard a woman screaming that it was Mark Barton that was shooting them. Meanwhile, in the midst of the chaos, the masked murderer managed to calmly stroll out the door, somehow concealing his two handguns enough to pass by officers already rushing to the scene. Barton then made his way across Piedmont Road on his way to the unsuspecting people at Alltech. At about 3 p.m., Mark Barton calmly walked into the offices of the Alltech Investment Group. 
though he had not done any trading with Altec for over three months, he seemed comfortable enough as he greeted the other traders. A guy he used to work with, Fred Herder, said he had a superficial smile on his face but wasn't very talkative. He said he needed to speak with the manager and stepped directly into an office with him and his secretary. A couple of minutes later, Herder said he heard three shots. After shooting both the manager and his secretary at point blank range, the burly gunman burst through the door into the main trading room, both handguns blazing at fellow traders and strangers alike. Fred Herder wasn't taking any chances. What had been unimaginable seconds before had materialized and was coming straight at him with blood in his eye. Herder dove under the desk, but Barton shot him in the back on his way down. I hope this doesn't ruin your trading day, snapped Barton, as he shot to kill, aiming for the head, the chest, and back, and with only one exception, every single shot found its target. Nell Jones, another day trader, said, quote, I was the first person to look into his eyes. He was someone who was very calm and determined. No feelings, no feelings at all, end quote. She rode in the ambulance with two critically injured victims and was treated for shock at the hospital. Although Barton did fire at her, the bullet missed and she was able to escape while he turned to shoot at other people. All four staffers were wounded, seriously, but not fatally, but the death toll at Altec that day came to five before Barton was satisfied. John Rustin, the first emergency medical technician to arrive at Two Security Center, said he found bodies scattered all over and several victims were still sitting in their chairs. He said, quote, we came in and there were two fatalities to the left, one critical to the right, one fatality in the hallway, two more critical and one walking wounded. Leaving five more dead and a total of a dozen injured, once again, Barton took advantage of the chaos of the massacre and before the double crime scene could be cordoned off, undetected by law enforcement troops swarming over the area, Georgia's most prolific mass murderer had already made his getaway. By an incredible coincidence, less than a half hour after the first reports of gunfire in Buckhead, a heartbreaking triple murder scene was discovered 16 miles away in Stockbridge, a suburb southeast of Atlanta. Jimmy Mercer, chief of Henry County Police Department, announced at the press conference later that evening that, quote, there is a request for a welfare check on the inhabitants of the home, which was the home of Mark Barton and Leanne Barton and their kids, Matthew and Michelle. The first call was received by the Henry County Police Emergency Response Center at 3.32 p.m., but after confirming that it was indeed a homicide, it was almost two hours before detectives were able to briefly enter the apartment and then a thorough inspection would have to await the issuance of a search warrant, which was not obtained until 7.08 p.m. that afternoon. It would be 9.30 p.m. before Chief Mercer would make the official announcement about the preliminary results of the search. Henry County Police set up a command post outside 1505 Cobblestone Drive at the Bristol Green Apartments and would reveal only that there had been a homicide involving three victims who were apparently related to the fast-breaking news from Buckhead, and that that information found at the scene had led authorities to conclude that, quote, three other people might still be in danger. By the time the crime scene tape went up in Stockbridge, the search for the fugitive mass murderer had already captured the attention of the nation. Now came the first signs that had first appeared to be a classic workplace massacre took a sinister new dimension as details of the gruesome triple slaying leaked out bit by provocative bit, 
While awaiting further information from official sources, reporters frantic for an edge canvassed the neighborhood, eliciting reactions and observations from people who had known the Bartons. None of the neighbors reported noticing anything suspicious at the strangely quiet apartment. For five hours, nobody knew where the killer was. Police had no way of knowing whether he might be on top of a building, lurking somewhere in the internal maze of office towers, or hiding in the bushes. Terrified office workers either huddled fearfully in barricaded back offices or dashed madly out onto the street while city, state, and federal law enforcement officers blanketed the area. An emergency medical crew struggled to focus on finding, treating, and evacuating their wounded. Seasoned paramedics reeled at the extent of the carnage. Roads were blocked off and traffic rerouted. Police dogs were brought in and SWAT teams in full regalia were joined by the FBI agents in military gear as they combed the parking lots and roadways of Buckhead. Each office building had to be secured, searched, and cleared, office by office and floor by floor. Office workers were confined in safe areas and released only after hours of searching had cleared an evacuation route. Those wishing to leave the scene by car were subjected to identity checks and thorough searches of their automobiles, including opening the trunks. Back at the apartments, the police were worried about three more people's lives because of a note they found that Barton had left. Three names were Barton's mother, Gladys, Bill Spivey, who had accused Barton of killing his wife and his daughter, Deborah, and Joe Fowler of Douglasville, Georgia, another one of Barton's attorneys. There was no indication of the significance of the inclusion of these names, and it might have meant nothing more sinister than the conscientiously provided listing of the people who would need to be notified after the multiple emergencies Barton was staging. However, police could not afford to take chances, and coming right after his vow to, quote, kill as many of the people that greedily sought his destruction, end quote, they treated the three names as a hit list and notified the parties that they might be a target of the homicidal fugitive. Detective Swanson said that Joe Barton fled as soon as he called his office to notify him about his name being on that list. He said, quote, his office star 69 their phone and called me back and asked me what was going on. And when I told them about the list, they said, quote, oh my God, do you think we ought to close the office? And he said, well, I would, end quote. Mark Barton had been to Fowler's office to request changes to his will on Monday, clearly showing premeditation. After killing his family and composing his notes, Barton had gone back to the law office again Thursday morning to drop off a set of keys and finalize the new will on his way from one death scene to the next. Gladys Barton, Mark Barton's mom, remained in seclusion, releasing no comment, but Bill Spivey had been trying to get someone to listen to him for years and finally everyone wanted to hear what he had to say about Mark Barton, now that it was too late. Back to the manhunt, Clayton County Police had Barton's Murrow residence actively under surveillance and were controlling all routes of access to it. Barton reportedly had access to a private plane, so all the airports in the extended metro area had to be checked out. As busy as the suburban counties were on special assignments with a direct connection to the slaughter in Buckhead, most of them were covering their local patrols with a skeleton crew, as all officers who could be spared from active duty elsewhere were trying to help clear the scene at Ground Zero, where 22 people had been shot by Mark. Northwest of downtown Atlanta, the Cobb County Police Department was especially shorthanded, 
with 100 officers out of town for a funeral, and the city, state, and federal troops blanketing Buckhead were joined by more than a few from Cobb. Even though the ranks were thinned, the heroic response of one officer was quick and effective enough when the killer struck again in Kennesaw, a prosperous conservative stronghold about 15 miles northwest of Buckhead, up I-75, where a Sydney ordinance actually requires residents to own firearms. Ann Greenlee had just finished shopping at Rich's, Metro Atlanta's premier upscale department store, and was pulling out her keys as she walked up to her car in the parking lot of the luxuriously appointed Town Center Mall. It was 7.30 p.m., about the time police were pulling the bundled body of his wife out of her closet, when the menacing stranger approached Ann Greenlee with his hand suspiciously tucked into a shoulder bag. He said, quote, don't scream or I'll shoot you. The 25-year-old college student was too frightened to scream. For a moment, she stared at him motionless, taking in a sight that would be burned permanently into her memory. She said, quote, his eyes were cold. Every time I think about it, it reminds me of shark's eyes. I think that's what let me know how much danger I was in, end quote. So terrified she couldn't scream, she found that she could run. So she dashed back toward the shelter of the mall, running for her life and expecting every step to be her last. When she reached the sidewalk, she turned around to see the mass murderer still glaring at her with his hand concealed in the bag. With a fresh spurt of energy, she dashed through the mall entrance to safety. It was all over now but the dreams, and they started in at once with a dreamlike sense of unreality as she reported to mall security and their office called 911. Meanwhile, Jim Gilmartin had brought his family to Town Center Mall after following the news closely enough to recall that the infamous fugitive owned a highly recognizable green Aerostar van. He remembered the license plate number, having seen it telecast. Like everyone else in the area tuned in to the radio or TV, Gilmartin was primed with the heightened sense of vigilance that can bring on the flashbulb effect where every detail of an encounter becomes a durable meme, as in the long-standing recall of, quote, where you were when you heard they shot JFK, end quote. Those fortunate enough to survive a close encounter with the infamous gunman would recall the events of that day like a slow-mo strobe and return to them again and again, seeking and often finding a message, a lesson, an inspiration, or resolution. As Gil Martin scanned the parking lot for a spot, he commented to his wife, Anne, how many green vans there were. Suddenly, he saw not only a green Aerostar, but when he checked the license tag against the one he'd been watching on TV all afternoon, seeing that match was the first real flashbulb, shortly followed by an even more intense jolt. Just as he registered the significance of the green van, he spotted Greenlee racing straight towards him headed for the mall entrance. She had a look of terror on her face. Then, as he proceeded along, he noticed the man staring at the terrified woman and shuddered as excitement turned to fear with the realization that he was looking at not only the area's most wanted vehicle, but the fugitive himself. At that point, Mark Barton apparently realized that he'd been made, and fortunately, instead of going on to stage another mass slaughter at the mall, he gave up his attempt at carjacking and got back into his own van. As soon as the distinctive green Aerostar pulled into the congested traffic of the mall, a woman named Manon Smith spotted it. Smith grabbed her cell phone and punched in 911. Cobb County dispatchers were skeptical at first, and Smith was nervous about staying on the line to persuade them her report was not a prank. She said, quote, 
I didn't want him looking back and seeing me on the phone reporting him. I really wanted to get off the phone. While Manon Smith was on her cell phone with police dispatchers, and Anne Greenley was blurting out her tale to mall security, an excited Jim Gilmartin took Anne and his daughter Molly on a dangerous adventure as they tagged along a few cars behind the van, trying to keep it in sight while on the lookout for police. He didn't have long to wait. Right on cue, Gilmartin spied a Cobb County officer on his way to investigate multiple reports of an attempted carjacking at the mall. Excitedly, Gilmartin flagged down the squad car and shouted, quote, that's the van, end quote. The green Aerostar entered the stream of traffic pouring from the mall directly onto Barrett Parkway on the way to the main northwest corridor, I-75. Cobb County Police Officer Huel Clements was still wearing the black stripe across his badge in honor of his slain comrades when he shifted smoothly into emergency response mode, verifying the tag number and tailing the green van at a discreet distance, staying in touch with fellow officers rushing to join him. He said, quote, My main concern was keeping surveillance and waiting for backup. Although as lead officer, Clements used neither his emergency lights nor his siren. As one squad car after another joined the procession heading north on I-75, the Desperado knew his run was finished. It was time to cancel all his debts. The green van pulled off the interstate at exit 120 and police followed him into a BP station in nearby Ackworth at the intersection of Georgia 92. A car parked at the McDonald's next door gave an alert teenager a front row seat for the whole scene. As 14-year-old Dana Pritchett described it, the van pulled into the gas station, slowed up at the pumps as if stopping for gas, and then slowly rolled to a halt at an odd angle in a space halfway between the pumps and the car wash. Corporal Curtis Endicott was the first of several Ackworth police officers to join the orderly, low-speed pursuit, and just as Clements pulled his Cobb County cruiser in behind the van, Endicott swung his Ackworth PD squad in front of it, while the other Ackworth police officers quickly lined their cruisers up on each side, thus blocking the exit. Mark Barton was surrounded. While Endicott was maneuvering into position, Clements was the first to leap from his cruiser, in one smooth motion going into a crouch and drawing his weapon on the suspect, shielded behind the open door. The teenager, Dana Pritchett, watched aghast, taking it all in as the young Ackworth officer jumped out and pointed his weapon at the van. She flinched as the driver put two guns to his head, one to each side, but she could not tear her eyes away from the appalling sight of a gunman blowing his own brains out as a flashbang rocked the van. We heard a muffled sound, Pritchett said, and his head fell against the steering wheel. Suddenly, all the officers were out of their cruisers at once, pointing their guns at the van, knowing all too well that an injured gunman could still fire off one last fatal shot. They were already sensitized because two of their own had been shot dead trying to contain the hostage situation less than a week before. Across the street at the Amco station, the manager on duty, Jim Fowler, could tell when it was all over. He said, quote, they all just started holstering their guns. It was 8 p.m. when the word went out that the bloodbath had claimed its 13th victim, and minutes later, the Buckhead crime scenes were given the all clear. The search for the crazed day treater was called off, and the first bodies were carried out. While on Stockbridge, the remains of the slain family were still undisturbed, pending the issuance of a search warrant. As soon as the announcement went out, as many as 200 curiosity seekers rushed to the scene, 
many willing camcorders, the better to capture their own imagery of this ghoulish bit of history. With a sharp eye for a business opportunity, the savvy Amico manager turned the unexpected debacle into a nice little windfall by announcing that anyone in the parking lot who wasn't buying something had to leave. His creative crowd management maneuver was a success. Quote, now they're buying stuff just so they can watch. Well, I mean, I guess that's a good business move, kind of taking advantage of a bad situation, but still a good business move. Mark Barton's motive in committing these last 13 homicides transcended the simple urge to kill. Murder on this scale and with so much explicit and implicit symbolism is a way of using gross violence to send a message. The only message that I'm getting throughout this whole thing is that Mark Barton was an evil piece of shit. And that's all that matters. Now I'm going to give you guys the list of victims slain by Mark Barton. The first, Leanne Barton, who was just 27 and was his wife. Matthew Barton, who was 11 years old and his son. Michelle Barton, who was eight years old and his daughter. Russell Brown, 42, a day trader at Momentum Securities. Dean Delawala, 52, a day trader at Alltech. Joseph J. Dessert, 60, another day trader at Alltech. Kevin Dial, 38, the office manager at Momentum Securities. Jamishad Havash, 44, another day trader at Alltech. Vadawate Muriadahara, another trainee at Alltech. Edwin Kin, 58, another day trader at Momentum. Alan Charles Tenenbaum, 48, a day trader at Alltech. And finally, Scott Webb, 30 years old, a day trader at Momentum. There were many more that were left injured and critically wounded and will live the rest of their lives suffering from those wounds. If anybody is struggling or having thoughts of hurting themselves or others, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. They are open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and have trained professionals to help you and walk you through. And that's all for today's episode. If you like this show and want to hear more, please subscribe and like and follow, and please share with your friends. You can find me anywhere you get your podcast at. And until next time, stay safe, stay alive.